Coming up on Self-Hosted 12, I'm back from the forest in Oregon with solar on board. Alex has gone nuts and installed wikis for two weeks. And then he'll tell us about his robot vacuum that runs Ubuntu. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. And this is Self-Hosted. So you're back from Oregon now. How was the, the epic road trip? It was a bit epic. It was pretty great. It was, it was a lot of everything, including some dad-kid time and um, some husband-wife time because it was two different trips. And of course, getting the solar system and the electrical system installed in the RV went pretty good, actually. I'd say best case scenario. The audience was right. They were writing in. They said, Chris, that's not enough solar. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right and go for more solar. And I got down there and I was looking at the draw of my refrigerator and all that kind of stuff. And they were right. So we went with a total of six panels on Lady Jupes. It's because you got this big ass normal house refrigerator in your car on wheels. <laughs> it does pull a lot. It's I didn't really appreciate that when I bought it, but yet it's so much space. So we have we have somewhere in the range of 1.2 kilowatts of solar potential power now on the roof. That goes into six, 600 amp hours of lithium ion battery storage from Battleborn, and then uh, we got a Victron 3000 watt inverter all installed rocking. We spent the night there at, in their parking lot. They let us stay in their lot, which I thought was pretty great because if anything were to blow up, I wanted to be right there. You know? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's a big job. But no, it went pretty good. Just thrilled, really, with the results. Thrilled. So has it been everything that you dreamed of, I assume, from your thrilled word that it is? It was a little bit more. I mean, honestly, all said and done, I, it, I didn't quite fully realize all of the changes it was going to mean for us. I'm really kind of still in the fa- in the testing and learning stages. It's a really complicated system, but I'm, I am documenting it. I launched a, a podcast to just sort of dedicate all that stuff around the RV, it, it Work Life and RV podcast, worklifeandrv.com. And I'm right now in the learning phase. Then I'm going to go into the testing phase and uh, try to just get my head wrapped around it because it's pretty complex, but it's also super great for future work, like projects where we go somewhere to a lot and we're working at a place like we did at Dell or like we've done at Intel or like we do at Linux Fest every year, Linux Academy, we can go in the parking lot and we'll be able to hook up and or just run off solar or it's just going to extend our project time immensely. It's really, I'm really excited from how much it's going to kind of give us flexibility in that regard too. So you originally spec'd out, what was it, 500 watts of solar? Yeah, yeah. And you've gone to, have you doubled that? Yeah, yeah, we did. And what's pretty nice about that is when you have, I mean, this is so obvious, but when you add more solar panels, even on a darker day, you're, you're collectively drawing in a little bit more power. And so even on kind of a overcast Pacific Northwest, raining, snowy kind of day. Seattle's not known for being gray, is it? No, never, never, never. I'm still pulling in enough power to cover all of my home automation system, all of my home servers, like the, all the Raspberry Pis, my storage and all of the smart lights are all running off of solar. Because a kilowatt doesn't really sound like an, an awful lot. You know, how much is a microwave? A thousand watts, right? When you're running a microwave, it's drawing a thousand watts. I guess so, yeah. Or a hairdryer is around 900 watts, a heater is around a thousand watts. So that kind of gives you an idea of, it's not like it's um, unlimited. You're going to lose something in the efficiency though, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you lose like 40%, I think, in some cases. It's pretty abysmal. Okay, so if I have a kilowatt array on my roof, I want to budget, I'm going to get no more than five or 600 actual usable watts out of that then, do I? Depending. I mean, it's pretty great if what you're drawing from it is DC. So if you can move some of your load over to DC, and there's a lot of things that are DC. 
In fact, almost everything we have that's electronic is DC. We just convert it to AC, either in a wall wart or in a box inside the computer. Speaking of AC, the other kind, the, the, the one that keeps you cool in the summer, that must draw a lot of power, right? Yeah. And one of the things, this is an area where you asked if it was what I expected, and I said it exceeded it. This is an area, just because so much was going on, including the trip down there, that I forgot to properly investigate how to run the air conditioners. And the big issue with an air conditioner is, and this is true for a home air conditioner or a mobile one or one that goes in your window, its biggest draw is when it's first powering up and that compressor is going and that fan's spinning up. It, it really spikes to its maximum load, and then it kind of drops down and it settles, and it just has a running load, which is still a lot, but it's not an unbelievable amount. A bit like a jet engine where they have the maximum like takeoff thrust, and then just, just cruising is, is easy almost. Yeah, once it's in its groove. Um, so they have these things called easy starts or soft starts that help, I don't know, shave that load down. So it uh, it will start the fan up, and then it'll wait a bit, and it'll start the compressor up, and it'll do it in a stage start process. And so with those installed, which they caught, even though I, I neglected to catch it, the installers caught it, we can indeed run the air conditioners off the battery bank quite quite well. It works quite well. Do you have any idea what sort of runtime you'll get from that? On battery? Um, not yet. My my first pass at it is somewhere around 6 to 14 hours, depending on how hard they're working. That's not bad, though. That's pretty good. It's not bad. And really, you'd probably run them for 15, 20 minutes just to get the temperature down when you just get home and then switch to fans and whatnot. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Especially if you consider in Seattle, you're only going to need it for two or three hours a day anyway, realistically. Can I confess something to you? Mm-hmm. Something I did not expect to be as hard as it was for me was shutting down the whole home system, all my servers, my remote login. I have I have one SSH tunnel that I have set up that I can bounce into if something goes down. It's my only remote connectivity. That goes down. Of course, I can't get to home assistant. I can't check the camera. And everything's offline. And it was like that for a week. And I have built up just habits during my day, if I get a minute, I'll just go check on how the, how are the temperatures doing, how's this or that doing, what's the draws, you know, I'll just check on that kind of stuff throughout the day. And it was like it was missing. It was hard having my servers down. Homeautomationaddiction.com. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. No, it's for sure it's a thing. That was, that was, I was surprised by, uh, by Friday when we were going down there. Hadia had to step out to take care of some business work. And so while she was out of the RV, job one was I got all the Raspberry Pis booted back up, got the Wi-Fi network going, got the net, got the internet connection back up. <laughs> you sound like me when I moved into this place. The first job that I did was ran Ethernet. Well, everything needs it. Everything needs it. Even the clocks, I swear, need internet. And can I just register a complaint, Alex? Can I register this? Can, can things just stop assuming they know my location because of my Wi-Fi network and then just not check again? I'm trying to get traffic on Google Maps and it's like, oh, you're on your Wi-Fi network at home. So you're, you're at your home base. I don't need to look up your location. And I'm driving down the freeway. And I, and I couldn't get my dumb iPhone to just re-double check my location. I toggled airplane mode. I closed Google Maps, reopened it. It just insisted. I just had to set it down with Wi-Fi turned off for like an hour. And then I picked it back up and it had sorted itself. I think you might be what they call an edge case there, Chris. <laughs> I know. I know. Did you see, uh, it was on Hacker News, I think, this week, a guy has a little, you know, children's toy trolley, and he filled it up with 99 Android phones, and he created a traffic jam in Google Maps. I did see that. I, you know what's cool about that is I'd always wondered, 
Had, had that ever crossed your mind? Like if you just got a whole bunch of Google Maps devices and... Yeah, how many people does it take to make the road turn yellow or red or whatever? You know what impressed me about that is that the phones could get the signals in and out in that pile. That's, that is really impressive from, from a radio engineering standpoint. I mean, if you think about a double-decker bus or something like that, you could have 50 to 100 people on that pretty easily. True. It's a bit bigger than a little children's toy trolley, admittedly, but... Yeah, these are all stacked on top of each other. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. It's been a huge transition for us. It feels like, in a weird way, coming home. Very, very thrilled. I, I'm so excited about it that my wife and I wrote two blog posts about it, and we recorded a podcast about it. So like I said, that's at worklifeandrv.com. The podcast, though, is good. I mean, I'm proud of it, but the blog posts have the pictures. So if you want to see the gear, that's where you go is the blog post. There's some good stuff in there. Well, thank you. So you have a little note here that we should talk about SSH Remote File Edit for Visual Studio Code. This is one of my favorite plugins. Oh, yeah. I don't know why it didn't occur to me sooner that VS Code might have this functionality. I wanted to edit one of my Home Assistant configuration files, and for some reason the web UI wasn't working, but SSH was. So I just looked in VS Code on a bit of a hunch, and there it is. Uh, it's a remote SSH file editing plugin. You can essentially load any directory on a remote system as if it was on your local system via SSH. And you know what the chocolate to this peanut butter is? The Docker Compose plugin for VS Code that visualizes the, the YAML layout. So if you, like me, make one space mistakes and screws up your entire YAML config, it catches that which is nice when you're saving directly back to the server. I love this plugin because it's, it's functionality that I had on a really old Mac app called BBEdit 100 years ago that I had a hard time ever finding replicated functionality for, and this is it. Did you note, though, that it only works on Linux, this remote file edit plugin? Only works on Linux. You have to be on... Oh, oh I'm sorry. Windows 10, if you're using the official OpenSSH server now, you can, you can use it on that now. That's a surprise. It doesn't work on macOS because they use a very similar SSH-type setup to what we do on Linux. That's what I thought. I'm, now, I'm not positive. I, I suppose it could work on any client, but it's the server that it's expecting certain SFTP features. There is a lot going on with this plugin, and it's just a real signal to me that VS Code is just going to be the editor that sticks around for the next 10 years. Atom was good. Sublime was good. Um, you know, you can argue that Vim or Emacs or whatever are good in their own ways. But for me, the thing that makes VS Code so, so good is I can run it on any platform, you know, Electron, thank you for that. And I can even run it in the browser. You know, Home Assistant has a one-click plugin to deploy it as part of Home Assistant. You can run a container that runs it, you know, in an isolated space on any system. It's just great. I realized that I was really liking VS Code when I had a realization that if I had ever switched away from the Linux desktop, I would still use VS Code on whatever platform I ended up on. But let's move quickly beyond that and talk about wikis. You dropped the wiki bomb in the last episode and you didn't sit around and do nothing about it. You went off and installed a whole bunch of wikis. And I'm really interested to see what you learned. Because if I remember, Alex, your requirements were a fuzzy search. And I added onto that something that might even be spousal approvable. Have you ever had that worry about what would happen to all your systems after you pass on? 
I have, and I've seen it come up in the community a little bit too. Like, what do you do? You write a wiki, I think. Just just some basics, you know. A wiki? <laughs> a wiki is your... <laughs> I was well, okay. Not a will. No, no, no. The self-hosted podcast recommends you write a wiki, folks. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. I'm with you, though. I follow you. Maybe my wiki could constitute my last will and testament. Right. I mean, it could be a. It could be in there. Right. Written in Markdown, no doubt. Yeah, in Markdown. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that saying that goes around that. My biggest fear in life is that my wife will sell my computers for what I told her they cost. <laughs> I have not heard that, but yeah, that's good. You can apply it to anything. So guitars, cars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. But so the reason I wanted a wiki was not to document my last will and testament, believe it or not. The reason that I wanted a wiki was to just try and descatter my documentation. I have some stuff in a Git repo from when I tried to do it that way. In I think it's on my GitHub called Today I Learned, TIL, T-I-L. I've got some stuff in Evernote. I've got some plain text notes in a folder on my server that aren't in Git that are in Nextcloud, I think. I've got maybe five or six different random things that have tried and failed over the years, and I wanted to try and fix that problem. I'm just sitting here nodding my head. I'm thinking, yeah, add Dropbox to that list, uh, iOS notes to that list, uh, QO notes on that list. Uh, Google Keep. Mm, yes, got a few things in Google Keep, too. This needs to stop here. The line must be drawn here. And so when you look on Reddit and you know, it's generally my source of inspiration for self-hosted stuff, actually. Um, there's a few different options, and loads of people espouse Bookstack as being the gold standard. It has this concept of shelves and books and that and chapters and that kind of thing, and it kind of tries to divide up your notes into this kind of logical structure, which not every single note kind of follows. But you can kind of make it work for what you need. So you could say have a book for computer hardware and then a shelf for servers, and then a chapter about each of your different servers, for example. Sounds like you're spending a lot of time, though, figuring out how to get your information to fit into its structure. Yeah, that's kind of what I found. And also another pain point that I really couldn't get past, and I admittedly probably spent 20 minutes trying to figure this out. So if you know the answer, please let us know, selfhosted.show slash contact. I found that image uploads were a real pain in the butt. I couldn't upload any images that were over a certain size. And I think that size was like 900 by 600 pixels or something. Oh, you mean image size, not necessarily file size. And do you know, were you using the S3 backend or? I think both. Um, and Bookstack wasn't using S3 to my knowledge. It was just spun up as a, you know, using a volume on my server with a container. Ah, yes. Right then. You can use an S3 backend with it, which might change that aspect of it. Oh, maybe, maybe. But in general, I just wasn't quite feeling it. You know, you can spend half an hour with with a tool and just generally get a feel for whether it's going to work for you or not. And I think a wiki is going to be a highly personal thing. So I know there's going to be some people listening to this going, oh, I love Bookstack. Why doesn't he like it? It looks really nice. I mean, the UI looks pretty great. It's not bad. You know, it's, it's a solid option. It just didn't quite work for me because I want this to be an Evernote grade kind of experience. I want it to look as nice as feel as nice and just not have to manually convert images to the right size to fit into that thing. And it, images is a real pain actually in, in this, uh, in this whole 
sphere. What kind of images are you doing? Screenshots? Or are you taking pictures of stuff? Like for me, it's business cards, notes, that kind of thing. Yeah, both. Like instead of writing down the specs of a system, I'll just do a NeoFetch to get the specs of a specific box and then just put that screenshot into the system page. Um, as well as, you know, photos I've taken on my phone of serial numbers of things and all sorts of crap. Yeah. Yep. Same over here. Now, the next one that I tried was wiki.js. Now, this thing is gorgeous. Yeah, this is even better looking than Bookstack. It has a really nice, easy to follow and understand layout. And looking at this, it, it appears it's, it's a Node.js app, so it must set up its own web server and then you point it at a database? I started out with MySQL. I say I started out, I, I continued until the end with MySQL, but you, I used MySQL to start with. And it also supports, um, obviously, MariaDB, uh, Postgres, as well as MS SQL or SQLite 3 as well. It's a Node.js application, and um, version 2 is built as stable. There is a legacy version 1, which I didn't try. I tried the new version 2. And in general, I really, really like this application, except for one really fundamental thing. It didn't feel finished. Every time I went to click on something, it had this little coming soon banner. <laughs> Pardon our dust. Which is fine, I guess, but I wish I could turn that off in settings. Like... I don't want to see coming soon all over the UI every time I'm using something. And one of the things that really got me was sitemap is coming soon. And that's one of the key things that I wanted to have. I love looking through a Git repository that has a folder structure that makes sense. For me, I need my notes to kind of fit into that hierarchical structure, almost like files and folders do. And if possible, I'd like to be able to tag something with multiple tags and have it show up in multiple places potentially, because it's so often the case that you end up with, I don't know, let's, let's use a bash script as an example, but that bash script is about Docker. So you might want it to show up in your Docker notes section, as well as your bash scripts notes section. I couldn't find a way to make WikiJS quite mold into my situation. However, I will say it is stunningly beautiful. The search worked pretty darn well, and I think it is definitely one to watch. Serious contender? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely will be. It's GPL3 too as well, I, I believe, which is pretty nice. That's nice, yeah. I, I like the fact that on their website, you know, there's three ways to host this thing. You've got AWS, DigitalOcean, or self-hosted. And I love the fact that these guys are putting that front and center. I think it's, I think it's perfect, you know? Um, so give it time. I think it will be the wiki gold standard moving forward. And and certainly the screenshots you can see on their website, which is wiki.js.org, you can get a good sense for just how beautiful this thing is. And it's, it's so close to what I want. Um, now, an honorable mention for another tool that is not self-hostable and is not open source, unfortunately, because if it was, it would be a slam dunk, is Gitbook. Now, we actually use that over at Linux Server uh, to host all the documentation over there. And it's it's got that beautiful fuzzy search that I was after. It will show you words within the documents as well. Mm, that is nice. You can not only just search the titles, because I don't know about you, my brain files stuff based on the odd keyword or stuff like that, with, with which I know is in an email or is in a note somewhere. And I can spend hours looking for that one keyword, which I know is in there, but the search algorithm isn't looking deep enough. And so all that led me finally towards TiddlyWiki, 
Uh, one other one I should actually just mention briefly is um, MK Docs. Now, I really did like this one as well. Um, it's Git-based, and that wasn't quite what I was looking for um, in this situation, but it was really close between MK Docs and TiddlyWiki. In the end, by this point, I'd tried out half a dozen wikis and I just wanted to start actually documenting stuff. So I just went with TiddlyWiki and uh, it's version 5. And I must say, I've been super duper impressed with it. It's not the prettiest. I mean, it's not ugly by any stretch. It's just functional. Just gets the job done, gets out of your way, shows you the information that you want. And each note that you create is called a tiddler. (laughs) I'm loving the names. (laughs) And each tiddler can have a tag. It can have multiple tags. And guess what? When you tag something with multiple tags, it can show up under multiple categories, which means that I can have that wonderful esoteric system that molds with the weird ass way in which my brain works. Oh, that is perfect for you. And have stuff stored in three different categories all at once. It sounds like maybe you did find your perfect wiki then. Yeah, maybe. So I'm curious about the setup side of it. What's it like as a server piece of software to get going? Well, much like all the other wikis, I ran it out of a container. So it was up and running in a couple of minutes flat. And if I look at my stats on my server at the moment, it's currently using 90 megabytes of RAM. So we're talking about a very lightweight application here. Um, If we look at Smokeping, for example, that uses 40. Uh, Plex is using 2.5 gigabytes. Oof. Nom, nom, nom. (laughs) (laughs) I think Cheese might be watching a video right now, but... Well, I mean, it's it's doing a, a very different job than your wiki is, so that's understandable. So Tiddly Wiki, the name didn't uh, put you off, huh? It actually has made me wince once or twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could have a better name. Um, and now image uploads, again, were a bit of a pain point. You have to upload the assets as a separate tiddler and then sort of link that into Tiddly Wiki and hmm. creating a table of contents is is a bit of a thing and you have to follow documentation i mean it it takes 10 minutes but i don't know why they don't just have it like that out the box or a check mark box that i can click and have it do do it that way i mean there's lots of stuff that makes it great but equally i think there's definitely a lot that could be done in the user interface side of things to improve it but i'm really happy i found it i think i'm going to stick with it for a little while and hopefully it doesn't end up like that xkcd comic of We've got 13 standards. We need one standard to rule them all. And now we have 14 standards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure it will, but I hope not. Let me ask you a question. Would you deploy this for a community or would you choose a different one for a group of people to work with? Because this sounds like it very much works with your kind of mind and thought process and way of retrieving information. But what about a group of people? Well, the search is great for a start. And I think for a community, search is the number one thing that you need to work well. Uh, The next thing that you need to work well is kind of moderation and users and that kind of thing for a community, which leads me on to something I wanted to talk to you about, really. We can do this meeting live on air, if you like. A little production meeting right now? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Come on on in here in my office. (laughs) I get maybe half a dozen messages a day from people saying, how do I do this? Or did you hear about this? Or where did I find that link? Or Yes. And I love it. I I don't mind. This is not a negative... This is not a negative thing whatsoever, but I think it would be good if we as a community could come together and start building a central repository of where to find all of this information, because it is scattered across the web, and there's a lot of smart people listening to this podcast. I know because you email me and you tell me lots of amazing stuff. So if we can all get together 
and try and build a wiki of some sort to be the ultimate self-hostable, self-hosted wiki on the internet, and we can self-host it ourselves, then I think we're eating our own dog food, number one. But number two, when people are trying to get into self-hosting stuff, they will discover this wiki and they'll discover the show and they'll start falling hopefully down the rabbit hole and we can just bring a whole bunch more people into the fold and uh, hopefully end up being the one-stop shop for this kind of stuff on the internet. You never know. I tell you what, it's, it's a big vision, Alex. It's a big vision, but I actually think it's pretty great. I'd get down on that. I'd probably even look at seeing what some of my personal documentation I could convert to a wiki to help other people. I probably have some stuff I could contribute right away. So how would you run something like this? I think you need some community help with that as well. Well, I've had a couple of people on Telegram already tell me that they're up for it uh, in terms of moderation and helping me build the thing out. I think we'd probably be looking for three or four volunteers just to spend some time with me and Chris on, on Telegram in a private group just to go through some stuff figure out how to actually set this thing up and uh, and get started. So if you're interested, send me an email uh, at selfhosted.show slash contact, or you can tweet me on Twitter at Ironic Badger, and uh, we'll, we'll get that ball rolling. I like it. We'll do an update in a future episode. That could be a nice resource. I remember back in the day for last, we thought about doing something similar, but there were so many other resources that came along, it wasn't really necessary. Unfortunately, the resources I use are pretty much Project GitHub pages and Reddit, and neither one of those are great because Reddit is, it's like a river, it's changing constantly and you lose stuff, and GitHub pages can just sort of be really hit and miss in terms of details and documentation. So I would love to see something like this. Out of all the wikis that I tried, the one that I think is most likely to fit our needs is that MKDocs one. Oh, really? Not TiddlyWiki, huh? Because it's based around Git, and we can then use GitHub's pull request model to accept stuff coming in and kind of filter it and curate it that way. Going back to the community slash team thing, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's very easy to do Git blame and figure out who modified Chris Fisher's wiki page. <laughs> I love that you're already planning trolling. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to. It's the internet. <laughs> you just exposed it, though, right here. Right here on the pod. I'm calling it a pod now. The self-hosted pod. <laughs> it's so horrible. I mean, if you want to sound like a douche, be my guest. Uh-huh, okay. All right. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're the guy with a robot vacuum, so let's talk about that for a little bit. I'm the guy with a robot vacuum running Ubuntu, darling. What? Yeah. What? Next, you're going to tell me you have it working with Home Assistant, and then I'm just going to quit life. Oh, yeah. No! <laughs> <laughs> I bought a robot vacuum, and it's a, it's a Roborock S5. Now, Roborock are owned by Xiaomi the Chinese company. So I'm well aware that, you know, my data will be going off to a data center that contains coronavirus. Oh, geez, too soon. <laughs> Is it still connected to their cloud service running Ubuntu? Does it come running Ubuntu? No. So it, it comes out the box with um, a Mi Home app that you pair it with, like much of their other stuff and like light bulbs and, and what have you. And out of the box, it works just fine. It has a little LiDAR thing on it that maps the room out. And, you know, it's, it's, pr it's pretty cool. Two humans detected. <laughs> yeah, assimilate. The robot <laughs> vacuums. Just the, the room mapping is particularly creepy to me. But I, I do kind of also appreciate the utility of it. Well, it's nice if you think about it, because you can say to the robot, go clean the kitchen or go clean the toilet or whatever, not the inside of the toilet, obviously, but you can say like, 
different zones. I would buy that robot, though. <laughs> yeah, I would too. And so naturally, if I'm going to buy a gadget, I want to make the most out of it. And I want to try and integrate it with Home Assistant so that when I leave the house, I can have my robot vacuum start cleaning. And when I come home, it can go back to its dock. So it's never running when I'm here. Um, that's the simple use case. Or it could be like, uh, you know, it's cleaning time where I'm doing some hoovering of the stairs, for example. And then the vacuum is doing its thing as well. And if we're having a cleaning mode, it doesn't matter if it's churning away. So, so do you have a cleaning mode? Is that something you've done? Yeah, it plays Blink-182 full volume through my stereos because that's peppy enough that it gets my, my energy going. And then, uh, yeah, we start doing some washing up or... And then the robot vacuum deploys. All the lights turn on. The humans deploy. and <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, it turns the lights on for 45 minutes and we have to keep going for that 45 minutes. That's a neat idea. And then at the end of that 45-minute period, the lights dim or turn off on Blink-182 stops playing and we know we're good. You need to have some wine deploy somehow. That would be the next level at the, at the end. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I guess you could always automate yourself to do that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have any issues with that. That would be pretty easy. And, I, and you automatically get the benefits of the location awareness when it's communicating with Home Assistant. So that's nice as well. And you can integrate it with all the other automation. So there's obviously advantages to doing that. So... Is there some sort of project out there designed to flash robot vacuums? Are they that popular? Yeah, believe it or not. Oh, I love the community. <laughs> so amazing. So to start with, I discovered that I needed to obtain something called a Xiaomi Home Access Token. And the documentation on the Home Assistant website was a little bit out of date. So I submitted my first ever Home Assistant pull request. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> And so if you use a specific version of the Mi Home app, an old one, by the way, you can actually go into the file system of your Android device and retrieve the access token that way. It's not too difficult, but it took me probably an entire weekend to figure it out because the documentation wasn't up to date. So there you go. I saved you some time. And then so once you have your token, you can enter that into Home Assistant and use the Xiaomi Home Assistant integration, and it just, just works. But I wanted to go a step further than that. I wanted to root my vacuum. I wanted to put Ubuntu Linux on my vacuum. And to do that, you use something called Valitudo. Now, Valitudo is an open source firmware that you flash onto your robot vacuum. And this thing uses the robot's Wi-Fi access point to basically pretend to be the Xiaomi servers. You then flash the Valitudo firmware onto it. This is all done over the air. You don't have to plug any cables in. You don't have to do any soldering. All the documentation is on their website, and it, it's actually really straightforward. And within a few minutes, you'll have Ubuntu on your network. You can SSH into your vacuum if you want to. That's great. I love that so much. <laughs> but one of the really super cool things that it enables, as if a robot vacuum running Ubuntu isn't cool enough already, is you can now use MQTT, so you can bring the map into Home Assistant using MQTT. So you can have a card on your Home Assistant dashboard, which uses the LiDAR sensor on top of the vacuum to actually map out your house in Home Assistant. It updates in real time and tells you whereabouts in the house it physically is, which is so cool. That's super high tech. <laughs> All right. Okay, you're selling me on this now. Now, you just got to build one of these and pre-flash it and ship it to me. That's all. <laughs> I got it on Black Friday. It was $360, this vacuum. Well, I've seen some of the... I can't I can't remember the exact price, but the one I saw was near $800 for a different name brand. Yeah. 
they get pretty pricey. Well, you know what's next for you, man, is solar. Power all this stuff with solar. I'm telling you, it's next level. There's so much to learn. I I really am enjoying it. If you And I know you do. If you enjoy digging and researching and discovering new things and new tech, it's right up your alley. A little solar panel on the roof, telling you. I just need a bucket full of money to do it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But then you could charge your robot vacuum from solar. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I think if I buy an electric car, which will almost certainly be my next car purchase, then uh, solar on the roof. Because I saw the UK is actually banning gasoline and diesel car sales from 2035. That's pretty soon. I think it would be next level awesome to drive around a car that was charged by solar from at home. I mean, that just, I'm feeling pretty good having my whole home server systems running on solar right now. I'm feeling like, hey, look at me. But yeah, that's next level. Tell people about the blog. Give, give a plug for the old blog because you got some good stuff on there. We don't mention it too often. I have a personal blog over at blog.ktz.me where I try and document as much of my personal shenanigans as I can. Yeah, and you also often take really great pictures over there. So that's something that I appreciate about you. And something I'm trying to knock off from you is I'm, I'm trying to trying to do that same thing is put some good pictures on ours because it's not something we get to play with a lot in the audio medium. So that's why I like to mention the blogs because it's like every now and then there's a little extra stuff there. You've documented a lot of these projects over there. Fair warning, my latest post was about Brexit, but... Uh, <laughs> now we mention it. <laughs> <laughs> my latest post... Um, Aside, I quite often talk about all the projects I'm up to and, you know, how I do 3D printing and when I switch to iOS for a week and, you know, just that kind of stuff, really. Yeah, that was an interesting week. I just launched a blog, chrislast.com, and I did an episode, a little audio episode about uh, the Max Vista moment. So you should check that out. I know you're not a big Catalina guy over there, but uh, you should give it a listen. My MacBook is still on the one before Catalina. You seem like a big Mac guy. <laughs> like you're really into it. <laughs> Am I? No, I'm giving you a hard time. Oh. <laughs> All right. And then, of course, the show is at selfhosted.show. And we'd love to hear from you, selfhosted.show slash contact. And links for the wikis or the blogs or all the stuff we talked about today are at selfhosted.show slash 12.